Welcome to the January 4th, 2024 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss the findings from a Phase two study of CD24FC for prevention of graft-versus-host disease. Learn more about the origins of chronic, active Epstein-Barr virus disease and discuss the role of PF4 in platelet activation. We first examined data in the blood article entitled A Phase II Trial of CD24FC for Prevention of Graft versus Host Disease by John Maginot from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and colleagues. Graft versus host disease, or GVHD, remains a significant complication in patients who undergo human leukocyte antigen-matched unrelated donor allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, or MUD, HSCT, for hematological malignancies. Moreover, GVHD often develops despite standard calcineurin inhibitor-based prophylaxis in combination with methotrexate. Approximately 40 to 60% of patients undergoing MUD HSCT will develop acute GVHD, with 15 to 25% of these patients developing severe grade 3 or 4 disease. Of those patients who develop severe disease, up to 50% will die. Therefore, improving the prevention of GVHD remains an unmet clinical need. Alloreactive T-cells are the principal mediators of acute GVHD. Thus, strategies aimed at preventing GVHD have largely been focused on controlling their activation, homing, or depletion. However, the disadvantages of T-cell therapies include the risk of relapse, infection, and graft rejection. Tissue injury caused by pre-HSCT myeloablative conditioning plays a significant role in acute GVHD via the release of inflammatory cytokines and activation of damage-associated molecular patterns, or DAMPs, which activate host antigen-presenting cells. The immune response to DAMPs can be reduced when cell surface glycoproteins, such as CD24, bind and sequester DAMPs. Studies conducted in murine models of MUD HSCT have shown that defects in CD24 strongly promote GVHD. The idea that targeting the CD24 pathway in GVHD may be advantageous is based on the finding that this pathway primarily regulates responses of innate immune cells to tissue injury. In particular, in preclinical murine models, administration in mice of a human CD24 fusion protein, CD24FC or MK7110, ameliorated damp-mediated inflammation and GVHD-related mortality without impeding the graft versus leukemia effect. To test this therapeutic strategy in humans, the authors conducted a multicenter double-blind phase two trial to identify a recommended safe dose of CD24FC, followed by an open-label expansion phase to evaluate the efficacy of CD24FC in preventing GVHD after MUD HSCT. 
The study enrolled adults aged 18 to 70 years, undergoing myeloablative allogeneic HSCT for hematological malignancies. All patients had HLA-matched unrelated donors and received myeloablative conditioning regimens and standard post-transplant immunosuppression with tacrolimus and methotrexate. The dose escalation phase assessed pharmacokinetics, safety, tolerability, and dose-limiting toxicities to identify the maximum tolerated dose of CD24FC for Phase 2b. A total of 24 participants were randomized to one of two ascending single-dose cohorts, one multi-dose cohort, and a placebo control group. Dose-limiting toxicities were not experienced by any of the participants in the CD24FC escalation or expansion cohorts. The multi-dose regimen, consisting of 480, 240, and 240 milligrams of CD24FC, administered as an infusion on days negative 1, 14, and 28 respectively, was selected for further study in an expansion phase because it had similar safety outcomes as the single-dose regimen with a more sustained drug exposure. An additional 20 patients were then given the CD24FC multi-dose regimen to assess efficacy. The primary endpoint in this expansion phase was grade 3 to 4 acute GVHD-free survival at day 180, and secondary endpoints were relapse-free survival at one year and overall survival at one year. 26 patients who were treated with the multi-dose regimen were then compared to a control cohort consisting of 93 matched historical controls from the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research database. Grade 3 to 4 acute GVHD-free survival at day 180 was 96.2% in the CD24FC expansion cohort, compared to 73.6% in matched controls. Additional analysis showed no statistically or clinically significant differences in overall survival or the risks of chronic GVHD or relapse between these two groups. Two participants developed Stevens-Johnson syndrome, but whether this rare complication was related to CD24FC could not be excluded with certainty. The authors also pointed to a need for additional studies to evaluate the potential efficacy of the single-dose regimens compared to the three-dose regimen of CD24FC used in the current study. In an accompanying commentary, Paul J. Martin from Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle, Washington, notes that the findings of Magano and collaborators show that agents targeting antigen-presenting cells can help prevent GVHD, which is a novel approach compared to the historical use of agents targeting T cells. They also point to the need for additional studies to understand whether targeting damp signaling with CD24FC could be used together with conventional immunosuppression to prevent acute GVHD without increasing the risks of recurrent or progressive malignancy or infection, especially in patients treated with high-intensity chemotherapy and radiation. From a basic science perspective, additional studies are needed to define the spectrum of damps that bind with CD24FC and to elucidate the molecular basis of the specificity of CD24FC for multiple damps. Lastly, Martin notes that 
In interpreting the study results, one should take into account the statistical limitations of the small sample size and the use of historical controls. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the Blood article entitled Chronic Active Epstein-Barr Virus Disease Originates from Infected Hematopoietic Stem Cells by Jingxi Wang from Beijing Friendship Hospital in Beijing, China, and colleagues. Epstein-Barr virus infection is widespread, with more than 95% of the world's population infected by this common pathogen. Although primary EBV infection frequently occurs soon after birth and is typically asymptomatic, the infection results in the establishment of a pool of latently infected B cells. EBV infection has also been associated with various diseases, including infectious mononucleosis, IM, EBV-associated hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, and a variety of cancers. In addition, primary EBV infection can occasionally lead to a non-resolving chronic viral infection, known as chronic active EBV infection, or CAEBV, typically associated with EBV infection of T cells and NK cells in addition to B cells. The prognosis of CAEBV is heterogeneous. A proportion of patients will experience severe and aggressive disease with complications including gastrointestinal ulceration, hepatic failure, and hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis that can lead to death. Responses to currently available therapies for CAEBV infection are often only partial or transient, with allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplant considered to be the only curative option. Despite continuous interest in this area, the exact mechanism of EBV infection to T and NK cells observed in chronic EBV infection remains elusive. It has been established that CD21 and CD35 receptors facilitate the entry of the virus to B cells by interacting with the EBV envelope protein GP350. Since the CD21 receptor is also expressed in T cells, it likely serves as the receptor for the Epstein-Barr virus. In the current study, the authors raise the question of whether the virus may also be able to infect progenitor lymphoid cells, thereby contributing to multilineage infection of immune cells. The authors analyzed bone marrow and peripheral cells derived from patients with this diagnosis and compared them to those of control donors. Bone marrow and peripheral cells derived from five patients with chronic active EBV infection, one with EBV-associated hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, and two from healthy controls were analyzed. Investigators employed several different assays to identify and characterize EBV-infected cell populations, including quantitative PCR, prime flow, and single-cell RNA sequencing. First, the authors used qPCR and prime flow RNA to detect EBV-infected cells in peripheral blood mononuclear cells and bone marrow samples. These assays revealed that EBV-infected cells were primarily enriched in the CD56-positive NK-NK T-cell fraction, but also were detected in CD19-positive B-cells and CD14-positive monocytes, 
in both the peripheral blood mononuclear cells and bone marrow. Interestingly, the bone marrow had a significantly higher number of EBV-infected cells compared to peripheral blood. The authors then employed single-cell RNA sequencing to look for EBV infection in stem and progenitor cells. The findings revealed that the Epstein-Barr virus infected the full spectrum of the hematopoietic system, including the stem and progenitor cells. The fact that all cell lineages were infected with EBV suggests that the infection was propagated from the stem cell department. Interestingly, single-cell RNA sequencing analysis of peripheral blood mononuclear cells and bone marrow cells from one patient with EBV-associated hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis and two healthy controls showed significantly fewer EBV-infected cells than in patients with chronic active EBV. Moreover, EBV-infected hematopoietic stem cells exhibited a higher differentiation rate towards downstream lineages, and EBV infection led to the development of inflammatory symptoms via activation of both adaptive and innate immunity. The authors also observed lineage-specific differentially expressed genes between infected and uninfected cells, which were related to viral gene expression in T-cells and monocytes, and cell chemotaxis in neutrophils. Finally, the authors analyzed peripheral blood, bone marrow, and plasma samples from one patient with chronic active EBV who was treated with allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Six months after treatment, the samples were analyzed for EBV copy number and viral gene expression. Interestingly, this patient showed no detectable EBV DNA in the peripheral blood, bone marrow, and plasma. Single cell analysis confirmed that EBV was eliminated from the hematopoietic system, further supporting the idea that EBV infection of hematopoietic stem cells contributes to the pathogenesis of chronic active EBV infection. Taken together, these findings demonstrate that chronic active EBV disease originates from infected hematopoietic stem cells, which should be taken into consideration in the search for innovative therapies for CAEBV infection. In an accompanying commentary, Rajiv Khanna from the QIMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute in Hurston, Australia, and Mahir Gandhi from the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia, notes that the findings by Wang and collaborators provide key insights into the origin of chronic active EBV infection. They expect that these findings will have major implications for understanding disease pathogenesis and for developing novel therapeutic strategies for this condition. However, Kana and Gandhi also note that one major question, how the Epstein-Barr virus enters hematopoietic stem cells, remains unanswered. Based on previously published research, the authors hypothesize that the mechanism may involve the transfer of mRNA from EBV-infected cells via exosomes, or direct transfer of viral episomes. They conclude that follow-up studies are needed to answer this question, as well as to validate the current observations in a larger cohort of patients. In the final part of today's podcast, 
we will review an article in Blood entitled PF4 Activates the CMPL JAK2 Pathway in Platelets by Richard J. Buca from the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom and Samantha J. Montague from the Universities of Birmingham and Nottingham and colleagues. Platelet Factor 4, or PF4, also known as the CXC Motif Ligand 4, or CXCL4, is a 7.8 kilodalton chemokine that is released from platelet alpha granules. PF4 forms tetramers with a compact globular structure that strongly bind to negatively charged molecules, including endothelial proteoglycans and infectious agents. Antibodies to PF4 have been implicated in the pathogenesis of several conditions, including heparin-induced thrombocytopenia and vaccine-induced immune thrombocytopenia and thrombosis. The underlying mechanism is believed to involve the formation of immune complexes between PF4 and antibodies to PF4, which activate platelets and neutrophils via FC receptors. In studies to date, PF4 has been shown to potentiate the activation of platelets to threshold doses of thrombin and induce platelet aggregation, but the underlying mechanism has not been investigated. Moreover, the direct effect of PF4 on platelets has not been studied in detail. The goal of the current study was to investigate the exact role of PF4 in platelet activation using platelet aggregation and protein phosphorylation assays. The findings revealed that, in platelet aggregation assays, PF4 stimulated biphasic platelet aggregation over the concentration range from 0.4 to 12.8 micromolar, with a gradual initial phase followed by a rapid second phase. Aggregation was halted upon the addition of eptifibotide, indicating that the process was mediated through the activation of integrin GP2B3A. To investigate the mechanism of platelet activation by PF4, the authors measured tyrosine phosphorylation of whole cell lysates by Western blotting using the antiphosphotyrosine monoclonal antibody 4G10. The authors observed that PF4 binds and activates the thrombopoietin receptor CMPL on platelets. This leads to the activation of Janus kinase 2, or JAK2, and phosphorylation of signal transducer and activator of transcription proteins, STAT3 and STAT5, leading to platelet aggregation. Next, the authors investigated the effect of the JAK2 inhibitor ruxolitinib on platelet activation by PF4. These experiments revealed that ruxolitinib inhibits platelet aggregation by PF4 and thrombopoietin, as well as phosphorylation of STAT3 and STAT5. Moreover, ruxolitinib blocked PF4 enhancement of aggregation in serum samples from two patients with vaccine-induced immune thrombocytopenia and thrombosis and reduced aggregation in a serum sample from a VIT patient that occurred without exogenous PF4. Finally, Using a polyclonal CMPL-blocking antibody, the authors demonstrated that activation of JAK2 takes place downstream of CMPL, which completely blocks aggregation in high-responding donor platelets in the presence of PF4. The authors concluded that their findings provide evidence that activation of the CMPL-JAK2 pathway 
can contribute to platelet aggregation in the presence of anti-PF4 immune complexes. In an accompanying commentary, Sally Thomas from Sheffield Teaching Hospitals and Anandi Krishnan from Stanford University note that Buka, Montague, and colleagues identified MPL-mediated JAK2 activation as a signaling mechanism through which PF4 triggers platelet aggregation. Through a series of elegant experiments, the authors successfully identified which components in the JAK-STAT signaling pathway play an active role in triggering platelet aggregation. They further note that these findings raise several important questions. Firstly, what are the mediators of platelet aggregation downstream of JAK2? And secondly, what role does PF4 play in MPL signaling? On a broader scale, the question remains whether systemic PF4 may play a role in abating inflammation, as indicated in several recent studies. Additional studies are needed to answer these questions, especially since the role of PF4 in the TPO-MPL-JAK2 axis and consequent platelet activation could be relevant in any setting of chronic inflammatory disorders. Thomas and Krishnan also note that it would be interesting to evaluate how PF4-mediated platelet activation contributes to the risk of thrombosis in general, and how a possible interplay between the FC-gamma immunoglobulin receptor 2A and PF4 could have a modulating effect in patients with myeloproliferative neoplasms. This is particularly relevant, since the authors demonstrated that ruxolitinib reduces PF4-mediated platelet activation. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.